0: This is WCNY's The Capital Press Room, and we're joined once again by Chris Alexander, the Executive Director of the state's Office of Cannabis Management, which is responsible for licensing and regulating all the players in the state's nascent adult-use marijuana market, which is entering a new phase with its latest licensing process this fall. Welcome back to the show, Chris. It's good to be here. So you began a new application period in early October. What types of business operations are covered by this latest round of licensing?
1: We've already done, uh, under the conditional licenses, cultivation, processing, retail. With this expansion here, we are adding additional cultivation uh, licenses, as well as transitioning our current small farmers to permanent licenses. We're doing processing. We're doing some distribution licenses, uh, some more retail, and then uh, micro business, which I'm really, really excited about being able to offer that opportunity. So five license types available right now. We do still have on-site consumption and delivery licenses to finish up developing and then make those available later. But everything else is is rolling.
0: Well, I want to get to the wide variety of licenses in a bit, but we got to start with the sexiest of them all, which is the retail dispensaries. How many are you looking to hand out as part of this latest wave of licensing?
1: Well, we're obviously... uh, well behind uh, the retail that we need right now. We are offering, we're prepared to offer really between 500 and 1,000 or so licenses. Uh, we've given that estimate to the public uh, just because, you know, we really tied the amount of canopy that we authorize for use to the amount of retail uh, and shelf space we make available. And so we believe with the grows that are coming online, that's the range that we need. The board will have the ultimate decision in terms of how many to issue at this particular time. But it'll definitely be more than five hundred retail licenses. Uh, We got a lot of work to do, and and the stores, the performance of the existing stores have shown that that New Yorkers have a pretty strong demand for for high quality products. So we're trying to give it to them.
0: And for people not in the business, canopy that refers to what the amount of growing space that's out there.
1: Exactly, kind of you know the amount of growing space that's being utilized and the yield really that's being gotten from each square footage really of, of of canopy that's
0: available. Well, notably for the first round of conditional licenses to operate a marijuana dispensary, in order to be eligible, you or someone close to you had to have a marijuana conviction in your past and you had to have experience running a business. Is there any unique eligibility criteria for this latest round of licenses to be a marijuana retailer?
1: There's not. You know, we do still have the same prioritization that is required per statute, which is, you know, extra priority folks, for example, uh, do get reviewed first. But we do have our general equity groups and then uh, folks who are applying as non-equity applicants uh, you know, will all get considered. There's no special uh, eligibility requirements for this program. We will look to do more special licensing programs in the future, but this is really the the opening of the opportunity to everybody that's interested. You know, we got a lot of folks across the country, really, that have uh, been eyeing New York's cannabis market as, as the next step. You know, we do anticipate this market to be significant. Um, and so this is the open call. If you're interested in running a cannabis business or being a part of the cannabis industry here in New York. Now's the time to throw your hat in the ring. And
0: so that's what this is about. As part of that so called open call, you said in an interview with Pix 11 that you're encouraging New Yorkers who are granted licenses under the conditional program but have had their business development halted as a result of a court injunction to reapply under the current licensing process. Why is that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we're obviously going through uh, this court process real time. You know, I can't to say too much about litigation strategy, but what I can say is that. We just want to make sure that we have all options in front of us. We have asked our CARD folks to reapply to ensure that, you know, no pathways are closed uh, when it comes to getting them operational. But we've also communicated and I've communicated publicly that, you know, we that commitment to getting that program running again uh, remains. And so we're working through everything, working with the court. You know, they have created this application exemption process, and we've been getting folks in uh, that way. I'm, I'm thankful to have, been able to open, you know, uh, five uh, businesses in the last couple of days, including three dispensary openings here in New York City uh, this week. But you know, we just got to leave our options open. We're not sure how this is all going to play out, and so we just got to keep those options open. So reapplying was just the safest thing for everybody to do.
0: Can you expand on that? Process, which which you described in that same PICS 11 interview, as a side avenue that the court opened, that's enabled some dispensaries that otherwise would have been part of this injunction to open up. Because I have to imagine, for some people who are either conditional licensees or just the general public, it can be a little head scratching that some of these dispensaries are able to open and others aren't. So, so can you talk about what that special sort of side avenue consists of? I
1: mean, it's kind of two processes created. One is uh, for an exemption process created by the court for individuals who are, you know, basically like ready to open. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of folks who are in that position and it's just about kind of getting those applications in front of the judge and signing off and they were ready to open kind of at the time that the injunction began and have kind of been holding place and it was a separate process created for individuals who had, you know, really spent a significant amount of resources Um, and so we have been pursuing both pathways to get folks open but again trying to just keep the avenues open for our card folks. The whole goal of the program, which uh, really you know comes from the laws, the intent that those who are most impacted go first, and you know we were the first state, uh, we are the first state to lead off licensing with the requirement uh, that someone has been impacted, and so we're proud of that effort, and um, we're gonna just keep you know staying committed to to that goal, regardless of of how things take shape uh, moving forward.
0: Well, regarding that second element of the so-called side avenue, this idea that businesses have made significant investments. Are you doing some sort of outreach to the card licensees who are waiting to open to gauge maybe how much they've spent? Are you waiting for them to come to you and say, oh my God, I've invested my life savings and I don't know what's going to happen next? How are you approaching that sort of second avenue?
1: we've done that already, you know, request documents and survey our Mm licensees, you know, for that information. So that's already taken place. We're just working with the court now to, to advance those requests.
0: You mentioned this idea of prioritizing certain applicants, even as part of this second round of uh, licenses to operate dispensaries. How, if at all, will the people who are granted conditional licenses and are now applying through this new process, how will they be prioritized in, in this process? And are you concerned at all about putting your finger on the scale too much because that could open the door to the same sort of legal challenges that you saw with the conditional licenses?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, and I, I've said this as well in the past, that, you know, the, the best way for us to bring uh, this type of program to life that that does identify uh, groups uh, that, you know, should receive some priority uh, is to is to try to do it in, in, in a way that's, um, you know, in accordance with the law as as currently drafted. And so when I say that folks get prioritization, and this is also kind of that open call what I mean is that you know folks who meet the eligibility requirements are really rather not ineligible because of some conviction related to fraud or employment offenses or or sales to minors, for example. Folks who who aren't ineligible are randomly ordered for the opportunity, and it's just in terms of the prioritization, the folks who meet uh, certain equity definitions they get reviewed first, right, as as per the statute. And so um, it's not that only certain folks will have access to this opportunity, everybody has access, but per the statute, and the goal really around increasing diversity and representation, it requires us to review those equity groups first. And so uh, we're just making that available. But I think, you know, really prioritization also stems beyond that, right? Like, we also have Discounts, for example, in the application fee—a 50% discount for equity groups. We have uh, support services on the back end that are, you know, only made available to these equity licensees. And so, you know, really, you know, in my mind, meeting that goal that's in the statute—it's it's a comprehensive approach that we have to take, both on application education and support on fees for licensure. On, in review of applications, but then on the back end as well as folks work to become operational. So it's a, it's a comprehensive approach to achieve
0: the goal. So if you're reviewing certain applications first, does that mean you also plan on approving licenses on a, a rolling basis so that it actually means something to be the first reviewed as opposed to reviewing them all and then handing out licenses?
1: This is not a first come first serve opportunity. Folks are able to apply all the way through the close of the licensing window, which we just extended uh, by two weeks. Um, it was previously, I believe, December fourth, and now it's like December seventeenth, eighteenth, and so we extended that. And so really, uh, we're not doing review till the close of that. So it's not a it's not rolling in that way. There is a cure process, like where folks have um, any issues with applications, we work with them to solve problems and make sure all documents are properly submitted. And so uh, that may create a rolling nature, but, you know, it's not a first come, first serve. It's really just uh, who meets eligibility, how many licenses is the board willing to, uh, to dole out at this time. Um, and then we're going to be issuing kind of as we go. Right. We cure an application. Somebody's eligible. We issue. Right. And and we'll just keep moving in that direction. Um, uh, but it, it is uh, definitely not a first come, first serve uh, opportunity. So people who have not yet submitted, uh, you have uh, a couple more weeks uh, to do so. Um, and you should take all the
0: time you need. Once retail licenses are distributed, how fast do you anticipate those businesses will be able to open their doors?
1: You know, this was a this is an interesting question. I, I wish that,
0: you know, folks uh, attribute and,
1: and recognize that cannabis businesses are just like any other retail uh, a business. You know, it takes time for uh, a chef or an owner of a restaurant to to get their doors open, to finalize their menu, hire their staff, do design, et cetera. And so that time needs to be built in uh, to any expectations on how quickly uh, stores can get open. Now, we have created uh, what we're calling Uh, a final license pathway uh, or non-provisional pathway for folks who have already control of a location, um, i.e. they, you know, they already own uh, a commercial uh, space uh, or they already have an existing business there potentially and they have a lease already uh, in place. And so we created a a, a pathway that's a little quicker for folks if they've got that, but they still need time to build out to hire, uh, to source product, et cetera. And so uh, folks should just recognize, you know, cannabis businesses like a restaurant, like any other business, uh, just need that time for that operator to, uh, you know, to 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 get ready to to go. So um, I can't say how fast. I, what I will say, actually, you know, transparency uh, in the review of uh, uh, the card program. Uh, you know, we now have our what, 27 uh, retail businesses running. Um, six months is six to eight months or so is kind of a general time frame for folks to to go from licensure to opening that we've seen so far. Um, hopefully we can cut that down, but but that's you know, what should be expected for any business to, to get
0: off the ground? And after a quick break, we'll continue our conversation with Chris Alexander, Executive Director of the New York State Office of Cannabis Management. Our listeners just joining us, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're speaking with Chris Alexander, the executive director of the New York State Office of Cannabis Management, which is in the process of soliciting applications for a variety of licenses in New York's recreational marijuana market space. You mentioned that this latest wave of licensing includes a micro business. What is a micro business in the marijuana context?
1: Yeah, I mean it's really exciting. It's it's, it's we modeled it after you know the kind of the craft uh, wine and beer. Uh, license that that we have here in New York, uh, where uh, a small operator is able to engage in all parts of the business. So alcohol and cannabis both have this separation between the supply and the retail tier. Uh, But the micro license allows you essentially to have, you know, you got to grow, right? You got to grow. You have a smaller footprint uh, for grow. I think uh, for the indoor grow, it's 3,500 square feet that they're allowed to utilize. Um, uh, But uh, you can also engage in, in retail. And so what we see the micro business as is really as kind of a springboard uh, for new brands, for folks to develop new strains, to jump into, into the market with a kind of a lower cost point. You know, So folks can grow at a, at a small scale, develop products and then get either engaged in you know, some limited retail themselves or get those products into the shelves of their local dispensaries. And so uh, we look at it as a great opportunity to for a business to scale and for brands to to build up some recognition. Um, So really, really excited about it.
0: Well, sticking with that idea of sort of specific approaches to people's interests and capacity, it's my understanding that moving forward, there's going to be sort of a variety of licenses uh, available in in terms of canopy. And for some growers, there's the possibility of, say, 100,000 square feet, whereas others, indoor licenses are limited to, say, 12,000 square feet are you concerned at all about such a wide variety in grow space there because it has the potential to create some, you know, major players? If, you know, you can do hundred thousand square feet, we're talking maybe $50 million worth of, of marijuana. So any concerns about a real system of haves and have nots there?
1: No, nah, not really. I mean, I think, you know, there's two things that that um, are are very true here. One, Growing cannabis, is especially indoors, very energy intensive, and so we've created these smaller footprints, um, you know, to try to you know curb that or curtail the potential impacts, negative impacts on the environment. And so, you know, what we also know, as as you know, somebody who's been in this industry for a while, uh, you know, small batch bros uh, can be incredibly successful, right? As, as long as you know you're using efficient practices and so you can you know get a significant yield and you know have a pretty consistent product uh in that smaller footprint uh the registered organizations for example they already had 100,000 square feet authorization so we didn't pull that back um, and it still is a tier that exists for others but um, you know, really, we're, we're pushing and even for this licensing round, we're really offering only uh, tier one and tier two indoor licenses, which only goes up to twelve thousand five hundred square feet. Uh, we'll expand more and we'll continue to also license outdoor grows, greenhouses, et cetera, uh, to make sure that we're having as minimal of a negative impact on the environment as possible while still creating that additional product chain for that indoor flower that uh, our, our
0: program uh, needs. Well, sticking with the medical marijuana companies that are now moving into the recreational space, why is now the the right time for them to gain a a foothold in the recreational market? Because as we talked about earlier, there are only, say, two dozen uh, uh, recreational dispensaries open right now. It's still an evolving market, and while statute says you have to let them in at some point, does it have to be now?
1: I mean, you know, I think, I think it's it's interesting, uh, the conversation around their transition. Uh, obviously, in our proposed regulations, we had proposed a, a delay uh, in their retail footprint, not in their just general participation in the adult use market. We then, in the final regs, pulled back from that approach, recognizing the need for more retail. You know, as I said earlier, we're, we tie pretty closely canopy issued uh, to shelf space. Uh, we've got 270 or so small farmers uh, who currently still have you know, around 100,000 or so uh, uh, pounds of cannabis that they're waiting to process and, and get through the supply chain. So it is difficult uh, uh, to uh, maintain a restriction on these folks uh, transitioning in, knowing that they could support getting that retail running. I'd also say, um, and you know, kind of put things in perspective for, for listeners, um, uh we have already delayed the ROs, uh, the existing medical operators, from transitioning into the market for two years. Uh, in every state, as we've said uh, multiple times, um, the existing operators they get the foothold, and usually they hold the market for uh, not just the initial point, but you know, really moving forward. You know, there often isn't much space left for others, and so we've already, you know, kind of tried to curtail. Or guard against any potential for them to control or take over the entirety of the market, but there was always anticipated a place for them to 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 participate and to continue to serve New York's patients, which is again uh, a key focus of our of our our program. You know, we want to be the state that has a thriving adult use program and, and a medical program that survives, right? like we we appreciate having that medical program. And so all of those factors kind of weigh in, but you know in, in my mind, um, you know, the ROs, uh, the existing medical operators, they were always going to be a part of this. Um, I think now is a time um, uh, where it makes it makes sense for them to start to contribute and participate. And the one thing I would say, like, <laughs> the last thing I would say, uh, is they're going to have to compete. You know what I mean? Like these are big companies, but New York is different. You know, the the culture, uh, uh, the brands that are going to come out of, 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 you know, communities across the state, uh, those big businesses are going to have to compete. And now that we've got a couple of dispensaries running, who are doing incredibly well, Uh, they're going to have to compete on the retail side as well.
0: Well, you mentioned the argument that entering these larger players into the market will help uh, the growers find someone who can purchase products that are looking for a home. But it's my understanding that uh, these players can be vertically integrated to a a large degree. So is there any safeguard at play to ensure that they will be purchasing some of the Marijuana that's yet to find a home?
1: Yeah, there is actually. I mean, you know, one uh, on the actually the retail side, uh, so purchasing of, of products, final products, um, there's a requirement that they uh, reserve a significant amount of shelf space for um, products that are not their own. Right. And so uh, they will help initially, you know, immediately, really, as they do bring retail online, uh, they will help with with some of that that uh, lack of access to retail issue. So 50 percent, I believe, is the first year requirement. Of shelf space, they have to shelf space they have to reserve for products that are not their own. That should do a, a lot. You know, obviously we rolled out the cannabis growers showcase as a way to help alleviate the pressure on the farmers and um, uh, and get some more sell through. Uh, but you know, getting some additional dispensaries uh, and ensuring that those dispensaries carry products grown by New York small farmers uh, is is it is a, a more productive way to get to some of those equity goals that we have as a broader program.
0: So you mentioned the Cannabis Growers Showcases, which, in addition to being a new way to sell marijuana, is also designed to uh, let the farmers who grow the marijuana sort of showcase their product like a farmer's market. and. In light of that, I'm curious what you think about the idea that the marijuana grown for recreational purposes is a a crop. And I ask that because there is a technical definition of crops and it has certain benefits if something is labeled a crop. So what do you think? Is marijuana grown for recreational purposes a a crop?
1: Really, obviously, I think the the complication here is, is the continued federal prohibition and what the definition of cannabis as a crop has in terms of ramifications across um, across different programs right and so uh, for our purposes you know we do believe that um, uh, you know we'll get to that point where we're able to kind of really treat cannabis like other uh, agricultural products but you know obviously right now the the federal prohibition makes some of that uh, pretty challenging so um, yeah I mean I guess we'll, we can follow up as, as more information unfolds with uh, the federal government's efforts to uh, to reschedule cannabis.
0: Well, finally, I know on the enforcement side, you're normally asked about illegal dispensaries, so we're going to turn that on its head and ask about the enforcement of rules and regulations for the legal retail dispensaries. How are you uh, approaching that? Is that a particular emphasis of your work? Because even a cursory review of some of the websites for some of these businesses, you can find some practices that run afoul of how they're supposed to be operating. So are you finding the same thing, that some retailers are skirting some of the rules and regulations that they're supposed to be following?
1: Yeah, we have, actually. Um, you know, the funny thing is, um, you know, this new education or this new, uh, uh, you know, this new operations that, that, that we're rolling out here. Um, and cu- coupling them with new regulations requires a significant amount of education. And so we have seen, like, advertising issues, uh, you know, that we've had to correct with our licensees. Um, uh, and, of course, um, you know, folks want to remain in compliance because they understand non-compliance could could mean a seizure of their license, right, and their business. And so um, it's been a lot of education. Um, I can say that, you know, it hasn't been, uh, you know, really folks uh, intentionally trying to skirt the law, we haven't had uh, diversion issues. Um, But really, it's really kind of been some of the nuanced around, around, um, you know, advertising is a good example, because, you know, folks kind of make general assumptions around what is allowed to be advertised as as a general business. And it's like, well, no, cannabis businesses, we treat them a little differently. So um, that's that's kind of an example that that we've had a a couple of issues with, Um, uh, late reports, you know, stuff like that on our growth side. But for the most part, it's been a lot of education. We got to educate folks. And then, you know, what happens uh, as we also on the ancillary business side, as we do this education, as we put out more guidance, um, you know, uh, both uh, consultants, lawyers, et cetera, they kind of help keep each other uh, and the community in check. Um, as it relates to, to these rules. And then they advocate for changes, too. You know, I mean, so there's definitely rules that folks uh, have asked for uh, to be uh, changed, and we're listening. Uh, but right now, it's, it's a lot of education, uh, nothing kind of, uh, you know, gross violations of the rules uh, yet from our licensees. Um, I'm sure it'll happen at some point. Uh, right now, it's been kind of like, you know, you can't, you can't put up that billboard, you know, <laughs> like that doesn't work.
0: Well, we've been speaking with Chris Alexander. He's the executive director of the New York State Office of Cannabis Management. Chris, thank you so much for making the time.
1: No problem. Anytime. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.